Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we're going to have a very interesting and educational interview with Dr. Chantel Tibbles, a renowned sociologist who, no pun intended, has embedded herself into the pornography industry. The interview will be inside the porn industry. Stay tuned and learn what you can about this interesting topic. For those of you who have children in the area, you might not want to have the children present for this interview, though there will be no use of vernacular or graphic descriptions, I assure you. But first, before the interview, a few news and notes in psychology and medicine. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Dr. Michael Smith on talking about supplements and vitamins, you may recall. One of the things he pointed out was that if you can smell plastic, that means the plastic and the chemicals in the plastic are in your body. He pointed out that something like the shower curtain, if it's made out of plastic, may be getting into your system. Well, plastic softeners that are called phthalates, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, can be found in a lot of products, including food wrap and fragrances. And there's mounting evidence that some of these may, in fact, cause health problems, just like Dr. Smith is telling us. There's very little government regulation of phthalates except in children's products. So, You might want to start reading labels and see if there's phthalates on what you're using. And if you want more information on this, you can go to ewg.org. There's information on phthalates. What about these weight loss claims that some products are putting out? For the most part, folks, it's snake oil. If you want to lose weight, it's a healthy diet and regular exercise. Now comes a product called Sensa, S-E-N-S-A, claiming that Users can sprinkle, eat, and lose weight with its powdered supplement. And then there's another one called L-Oxetane, saying that their skin cream would trim off inches. Again, the experts are saying, healthy diet and regular exercise. Weight loss has to do with calories in and calories burned. And if you're getting claims about other stuff, be very wary. Testosterone. You see it on TV now. You hear it on the radio. Sales of testosterone for all kinds of things. But what do we know about it? Well, we know there's a lot more research that needs to be done. There's mounting evidence that testosterone can cause cardiovascular issues. Research is happening. But again, gentlemen, particularly before you just go out and buy testosterone, have a, have a consult with your physician. Check in with people who know more. Yes, there is increased activity in the body from the testosterone. There is uh, improvement with sexual uh, uh, erectile dysfunction and various uh, other male issues. But it's something you want to look into carefully and not just listen to an ad and go out and start loading up on testosterone because it's going to give you some nice big muscles. In the news lately, we're hearing that maybe we can go back to butter. 
Maybe the saturated fats aren't as bad as we think. And people are using this as reasons to be eating all kinds of fat again and be chomping down on big pieces of meat. Is this wise? Ah, the experts are questioning this, and I think we all need to question this when we go back and forth and back and forth, trying this and then giving up this and trying this and giving up that. Remember the old Woody Allen movie where he's a few hundred years into the future and all of a sudden it turns out that eating Big Fat Max is a wonderful thing to do? He was making fun of this, of course. But again, before you switch and start eating saturated fats, give it a lot of thought. Healthy diets are still vegetables, fruits, beans, nuts, whole grains. You don't want to just go out and load up on on saturated fats, nor do you want to just start taking medicines such as statins so you can eat anything you want. It's just another medicine. So a word to the wise folks. Well, anything more that we want to talk about? Yes, one more thing, vitamins. Oh, Americans are taking vitamins. We're all taking them like they're going out of style. But are they doing us any good? And what about the supplements? You remember you heard the doctor say that supplements are great, and we had the book, and he gave you the exams you could give yourself in the book uh, for whether or not you want to be taking vitamins and supplements. Harvard just came out with another study. 6,000 men were given either a standard multivitamin or a placebo, Turns out there's no difference. The European scientists have often looked at Americans and said, hey, these Americans have the most expensive urine in the world because they're eating all these vitamins that they don't metabolize and they're just urinating them out. What's the bottom line of the whole thing for those of us? Well, if, if we can afford vitamins, and they are expensive, if we can afford them, they don't hurt us, so you can take them just as perhaps an insurance policy. But if you can't, the best thing you can possibly do, as always, is a balanced diet. That's really what it comes down to. Well, anything more here on news and notes? I suppose I should mention that more and more research is going on with regard to the medicinal effects of marijuana. Can't miss that one because it's moving across the country. 26 states now have some form of medicinal marijuana laws, and it's just a matter of time before the federal government rolls over as well. It's only taken us 50 or 60 years to come around to realizing that there may be some positive benefits in this plant that grows out of the ground. But until then, remember... Smoking is still smoking, whether you're smoking marijuana, whether you're smoking a stick, or whether you're sticking your head in in an open fire, the lungs do not like hot smoke. So some of the people who are recommending medicinal marijuana are saying look for some other form of ingestion, and that is probably wise advice. And now, now to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Chantel Tibbles. She's a renowned sociologist whose studies focus on human interaction with and society's relation to taboo subject matters, often in the world of adult entertainment, gender, sexuality, sex work, entertainment, pop culture, and technology. She's well-published in this field, and she has done something that's called embedding, these embedding oneself. You'll remember... Journalists embedded themselves with soldiers in Iraq. That doesn't mean getting into bed with them. It means putting yourself 
inside their working industry. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Chantel Tibbles. Thank you, Dr. Miller. It's really nice to be here today. May I call you Chantel? Of course. May I call you Richard? Please do. Chantel okay. is so much more of a beautiful name. It's a lovely name. <laughs> Thank you. I'll tell my dad you like it. I, please do. Um, to begin with, explain to us what it means to be an embedded scientist. Well, you know, it's actually a very interesting and new term um, that we see emerging from scholarship and in academia generally and um, predominantly, what we see are academics who are employed at a university, so they teach classes and they do research, but they are situated within the structure of higher education, a college, in whatever capacity. Um, What I do is a bit different. Um, I'm actually out there in the world um, interacting with the uh, population that I study, and I I struggle with the term study because that makes it sound like I am investigating a community of ants, which I'm not doing. Um, The adult community is extremely complex and vibrant and a part of society. So rather than going and and observing for a little while and retreating to my office in the ivory tower, I'm involved with the adult industry on a daily basis. I um, contribute op-eds to industry publications. I give talks and help with seminars at trade events. Um, I publish research that comes from observations and interviews in the business, you know, throughout the year. I have a blog that I run called PVV Online, where I um, review current content, old content, to kind of look at new trends that are developing, what people are liking, what people are watching. And I also interview performers and different people working in different capacities in the adult business. Because as consumers or the public, we generally only ever see performers. But performers are only a small fraction of the people who work in the adult community. There are a a wealth of different occupations from producer to writer to just general office folks who are all involved in this community and are all part of it. So I look at the whole thing from back to front, top to bottom. There are so many industries that academically trained sociologists such as yourself could investigate from technology to medicine to plumbing to the automotive industry and on and on. How is it that you came to choose one of the most taboo, if not the most taboo topics in our culture? You know, I'd actually like to agree with you there with the the most taboo. Um, The adult community is, is one of the last places that we as a society are still legally permitted to discriminate against. And, uh, you know, the the wreckage that happens to people's social life and human life and emotional life as a result of being involved, not because of the industry, but because of society's reaction to it, is extremely disturbing and distressing to me. So, you know, I, I definitely say that one of the most taboo. As far as how I became um, involved and interested in it, you know, it was a series of, of interesting serendipitous circumstances led me there. Um, I'm from the Los Angeles area, which is where the adult industry is currently centered. 
I completed my master's degree at Cal State Northridge, which is a university that's right in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. And I completed my master's degree in 2003 in sociology. And I was very interested um, in feminism and studies about sex and gender. And as I was exploring that as a young graduate student at Cal State Northridge, um, I started to read a lot about this porn industry that just happened to be situated down the block, basically, from where I was going to school. And I was reading all of these, you know, these studies and these academic reports about women being abused, people being trafficked, um, the level of misogyny, how problematic, how wholly bad, this, that, and the other. And it was interesting because I was reading about this in books from other academics, and at the same time, I was in this community, the San Fernando Valley. Now, I wasn't connected to the adult industry at all. I had absolutely no knowledge about it specifically. I knew nobody who worked in it. But I was there, you know, in the valley. I could see the buildings. There were lights turned on, you know, people driving on the right side of the road, whatever. And something about it didn't match up. It didn't match up to me that here in, in my hometown, the Los Angeles area, that all of this horrible stuff could be happening that was being reported in these books to me right there under my nose down the street. So I started poking around a little bit, and I started to see disconnects in the puzzle. And then I went on to the University of Texas to complete my Ph.D. and started investigating the industry. And the more I dug around, the more I realized that a lot of people, academics included, really like to talk about porn, but they don't talk to people who are actually involved in the business. So when I started doing this work, um, a lot of it had to do with um, working to give a platform and a venue to people's experiences that really were being unheard, and it's just kind of blossomed into this whole giant project. Yes. It, it seems to me that the porn industry pornography and sexuality in general is one of, if not the most hypocritical areas of our entire culture. Because on the one hand, according to the internet, 372 people check into the porn work or the porn industry in some form every second. When I multiplied that out and did the math, it comes to Almost 1 billion people, 1 billion people a month are looking at pornography uh, on the internet. A billion people a month. At the same time, our culture is such that when a few years ago, uh, Janice, Janet Jackson uh, inadvertently perhaps showed her nipple uh, during a, a football game uh, intermission, our United States Congress was still talking about that event a year later. This is about a nipple. Every human being on the planet has a nipple, or almost, almost every. Maybe there are a few people without them, but all of us come with nipples. She shows her nipple, and it becomes a cause celeb. So there's, and, and we know about the scandals, etc., etc., having to do with, with either pornography or prostitution or sex or talking about sex. Huge hypocrisy. Is that? Do you agree? Is that correct? Oh, it's it's almost indescribable. Um, you know the numbers that you threw out there about the searches. Um, I would probably venture to guess that those are low. A lot of those things are guesstimates, um, and you have people who are through different networks. There's also different 
sorts of porn. So, you know, there's the, the conventional hardcore porn that we think about, but there's also erotica and various other forms get literary or drawn or, or just through chat. So people's interest in sex and graphic depictions of sex in whatever way, shape, or form are hugely compelling, hugely compelling. People will spend so much money or, you know, occupy so much of their time or whatever about this very interesting type of sex release. And at the same time, you know, the the lack of sex education in our culture is woeful and, and disturbing. The hypocrisy, be it about law or about the way we treat people who are openly engaged in commercial sex. It was probably about two months ago now, let's just call it spring of 2014, when a story finally broke about, um, there's probably about 100 or so letters issued, if memory serves, but from Chase Bank, mailed out directly to people who worked in the adult industry saying that they would cancel their accounts. So this happened to performers like Kirsten Price, Kieran Lee, Tegan Presley, Chanel Preston, prominent people in the adult industry, but people who are not doing anything illegal, and yet a bank can cease to do business with them. And, I mean, banks are the scandalous of all scandalous places. A bank can cease to do business because of the nature of their business, and that's allowed. Now, it was interesting because the story broke, and this had been happening for years. It had been ongoing. It just happened that one of the people who got a first letter sent it to Perez Hilton, and then it became kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a viral news type of story. But it's just interesting to think about how our hypocrisy about sex, be it sex behavior, sex education, commercial sex work, is pervasive throughout our culture from top to bottom. And I think that this causes so many problems because never in my work and never in my personal belief do I feel that anybody or everybody should like porn. If people like porn, that's fantastic. If people like sex, that's fantastic. But everybody has a sexuality and everybody has different ways of negotiating it. But the idea that that we are so divided about how we feel about sex, and consequently we think we're allowed to shape other people's sexualities, I think that is a huge issue in our culture that stems directly from this hypocrisy about sex. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because every single one of us got here as a result of sexual behavior. It's sexual behavior that caused our conception. And yet this very sexual behavior has become certainly over the last 2,000 years, not before that so much, but in the last 2,000 years since the advent of, of a major organized religion, has become so taboo that there seems to be a direct relationship between the degree to which we create a taboo and the interest that we have in the taboo topic. It's almost as yes. if if we made talking about water a huge taboo topic, then everybody on the planet would want to be reading and hearing and listening to stuff about water. Yes, right? because we could start a campaign to make useful things taboo so we could get a whole bunch of social problems you know, alleviated. And yeah, well, That'd be wonderful. Exactly. I mean, I use water as an example because water and food and air and sex are basic to human existence. 
So we picked one of them, the sexuality, made it taboo, and now we've got this huge industry. By the way, talking about a huge industry, I read on the internet in preparation for our interview that the pornography industry is larger than the revenues of the top technology companies combined. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it says Microsoft, Google, Amazon, East Bay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink all combined do not generate as much income, uh, gross income, as the pornography industry. Is that close to true? Do you, can you guess? Or do we not really know? Is this just, uh, just conjecture? Generally, the statistics that you read like that are conjecture in the sense that there's never been any studies done. Most of the companies, if not all of the companies now, are privately held, generally do not release you know, information, statistics, what's happening. And if you do, you wonder, like, where did those come from, et cetera, et cetera. I would say 10 or 15 years ago, that statistic I would have probably bought hands down, not because I thought it was methodologically found, but because that was pre-piracy and pre-tube sites when the or excuse me when the adult industry was really crushing it. Um, and even back in those days, I'd say that that estimate might have actually been low because it didn't take into account, you know, a retail store, for example, a brick-and-mortar store that buys a copy of a DVD and then would rent that out to, you know, 50 people or however many different people had access to it. So the, the statistic would stop when that store owner purchased that copy. So 10 or 15 years ago, I would believe that statistic because of the state of the industry, because of the state of technology in the wider world, and actually think it was a bit low. Nowadays, I don't have a good sense up or down, and I don't think anybody necessarily does. The adult industry has taken a huge hit um, due to piracy and stolen content that's available on tube sites. Consequently, people pay for less and less porn. Um, so, you know, people who visit those large tube sites, the names of which I don't want to say, because if you don't know what they are, I don't want you guys going there. <laughs> Thank um, you. That's what, good. You're, what you're seeing is content that's been pirated from producers. So, consequently, those tube sites will make money through ad dollars or through upselling, you know, higher quality videos and, and whatnot. And none of that money ever kicks back to the producer or mm -hmm. the performers. So there's so huge amounts of money being made. We don't know exactly how much, but there's still it's a gigantic amount of money, and it, there's a billion people at least checking in every month. I want to get oh, deeper yeah. now. Let's get deeper into inside the porn industry. Let's talk about the workers first. How are these? Who are these women? And how are they being treated on the job site? Because you hear all kinds of stories. I had Chris Hedges on. He did some research, you know, in the Empire of Illusion on the porn and reports that the women are, are really treated terribly and there's a lot of, of physical harm that's being done to them. What does your research show? What's the work site like? Uh, well, I mean, there's no way to really characterize. I, you know, I can't speak for any one person's experience. Nor can I say I've spoken to these 20 performers. I picked the number 20 arbitrarily. I've spoken to this number of performers, and it's like this. Um, from what I have seen and what has been reported to me, um, people go into adults, go into being a performer, women and men included, for various reasons. But the myth or the idea that 
women are somehow being trafficked or forced into the adult industry, that men are somehow being trafficked or forced into the adult industry. I have never seen any evidence of that. I have never had that reported to me. That has not been the case. Now, the global industry um, is a different animal than just the U.S. specifically. The U.S. industry is very regulated by law um, in the sense that people would like to keep their livelihoods going. So for the amount of regulation that there is, people are generally on the up and up of it. What happens in, you know, European countries or South American countries, I can't speak to it being as non-trafficky or as, uh, on the up and up as the U.S. industry is. Uh, okay, then we'll stay here in the United States. You're, okay. you're going to be moderating a discussion soon uh, mm-hmm. on the 22nd of July, and it's, yes. called, um, it's called Women in Porn Shattering the Myths. Yes. What are some of the myths that are being shattered? Please tell us. Well, that in- event specifically is a panel discussion that's bringing together prominent women working in the adult industry with some of its critics. So a lot of anti-porn people, and there are still anti-porn activists out there, you know, you read a lot in popular culture and the media about how our society has become quote-unquote pornified or that that adult entertainment is becoming accepted. And and I would argue that that is absolutely not the case. Um, And one bit of evidence to that end is still the overwhelming presence of anti-porn and anti-sex activists. So in this panel discussion that actually is happening, as you said, on the 22nd at um, noon Pacific Daylight Time, and it's available free streaming. Anybody can see it if they'd like on mindbrowse.com. We're going to bring together a prominent producer from the industry named Kelly Holland of Penthouse. We're also bringing Cindy Gallup of Make Love Not Porn. Then we're going to have an anti-porn activist and a performer kind of hashing out exactly what happens. Now, obviously, we only have four spots on this panel, so there's no way to possibly represent every perspective. But some of the myths, just that the adult industry is controlled by men, for example, is extremely misogynistic, that the women who work in the business are somehow being forced. Well, this is a lot of rhetoric that we hear, but somebody tells us these points, but let's hear from the people who are actually doing the work. Let's bring together the people who have the criticisms and the people who are actually doing the work and let them discuss it. So this whole event is about trying to bring everybody to the table with their different perspectives on adults and and really get at the heart of the issues. Chantel, there's word on the street that everyone hears and and is somewhat written about that women who go into the porn industry come from a particular social group. They are people who were abused as children, who perhaps parents were drug addicts or alcoholics, whose parents mistreated them, perhaps they were sexually abused as children, and that is why they then go on into the porn industry. Uh, for from your research, is that the case? Or in fact, do what you might call regular women, whatever that means, with, with who weren't abused, who have a normal childhood, who went to school, are they also going into it as a job? Please tell us. Whatever kind of background you can imagine and whatever kind of motivation you can imagine, 
There is a woman adult performer who has that experience and has that motivation. There are women who probably fit the stereotype, most certain. But there are women who are college-educated, entrepreneurial, who enter the industry early in life, the day they turn 18, or when they're well into their 30s. The vast range of human experience of women who work as adult performers cannot be characterized as, you know, drug-addled, abused as a child, sex-addicted, etc. Those are, I think, convenient truths that we, as a sex-repressed society, like to rely upon because maybe it makes us feel better. Oh, there must be something wrong with this person to do that. And in my research, in my over 10 years of working with the adult industry, of interviewing countless numbers of women performers, both new to the industry, long since been performers, and people who have left the business, that that is absolutely not even the majority of people, much less all of them. So in other words, just like any other occupation, there are people who come to the porn industry as a sex performer, a part of it, from all walks of life and from all backgrounds. Certainly, just like college professors, just like lawyers, just like construction workers, just like people who work at the grocery store, everybody, it's, it's across the board. So you are definitely, with this particular point, debunking one of the myths, and I thought you stated it extremely well when you said that the public, we the public, want to believe that anyone who would do such a thing must come from a really hideous background, whereas what you're telling us is that simply isn't the case, that is simply our projection because of the way we feel about, as a culture about sexuality and about people who are willing to do sex openly on film or on the stage. In, in my experience, in my research, that that is, that is the position I would take, and not the position that everybody is damaged good. Okay, no that's very important, uh, Chantel. And what would you say is the same true for the male performers, or have you not yet gotten to study them as much? You know, I haven't done as much work with men performers as I have with women performers. Um, when I began the work, it was more within my understanding to approach women and to, to understand women's experiences. As a woman myself, I felt more of a connection and more compelled. Men performers are, um, that's kind of where I'm focusing my considerations currently. Men performers are, are, are interesting and different. Um, there, there's a big difference between men who work in the heterosexual porn production industry and the gay porn production industry. But at the same time, there's, you know, a lot of commonalities. The job that men have to do to be a porn performer is, is in many ways far more difficult than the women. They don't have the same measure of stigma, but they do get stigmatized in, in many respects. But their job physically is something that most men cannot do, um, which is something that your average guy doesn't like to hear, I guess. But it's kind of interesting. But as a consequence, there are far fewer men performers than there are women performers because far fewer men can actually do the job. And it's interesting how a lot of the guys are very, you know, much ignored as, as a human experience. And we don't really think about them. When you look at content, a lot of times, you know, the guys are... the 
pieces of them are cut off, so you just see, like, a torso and genitalia. And, and that's an interesting thing to think about because when we look at imagery, for whatever reason, we focus so much on the woman or her relationship to male genitalia in that look. But when you think about the workers, the men porn performer workers, in terms of dehumanization or what the, the workplace is like, we really have little to no consideration of that. And that's something that I'm working on now and looking at now is what happens to these guys that work as porn performers? How does this impact them? What happens with the labor? What is it like to be told that your work is worth less? Because that's what happens, even though your job is, quote-unquote, technically more difficult. So it's interesting. Are you saying that this is one of the few industries in which men have a glass ceiling, which where, where men make less than the women? Is that correct? Oh, I mean, with, with rare exception, there are, especially I would say in the last, you know, five to ten years, we are getting some, you know, big deal man porn performers. And, you know, this is absent the gay industry. There's always been, quote unquote, porn stars in the gay industry. But for men who work in heterosexual porn, we're starting to see, you know, the, the James Deans of the world, the Xander Corvuses of the world, like people who are getting these big followings and a lot of women fans who are who are into it, and people are kind of coming out as men porn fans. It's a really interesting thing to see and watch at trade shows and stuff. But in general, absent those, you know, a handful of stars, yeah, men performers make less money than the women. Uh, they work more frequently, I think, because there's fewer of them. But, you know, I was just on a set probably in the last month. And the performer, you know, he was a seasoned performer who had probably been five, six hundred scenes. And I don't remember the exact figures, but rounding about, let's say he was getting $800 for a, a quote-unquote straight boy girl, so just penetrative sex, kind of a plain scene. And the woman performer he was working with who was new to the industry, um, sort of an untested, we don't know if she has a good fan following, is she going to sell stuff, et cetera, et cetera. She was making a good five to $600 more than him for the same scene. So we have an experienced performer who you know is going to deliver, coupled with an inexperienced performer. We don't know what's going to happen, but because of the way the market works, the woman performer is making far more than the man performer. Why, why are there fewer male performers than females? Um, I, I think it has a lot to do with the, the difficulty of the job. Um, people, and this is something that kind of is an interesting thing because it attaches to or it kind of allows a segue to talk about California Assembly Bill 1576. But um, the, the work of porn sex performance, it's not, you know, when, when a a casual person or a daily life person or a person who's never engaged in professional porn sex production thinks about sex. It's one thing. But porn sex is very, very different. Um, porn sex, it, it takes a lot longer. It's a lot more acrobatic. Um, there's a lot of lights. There's a lot of people around. There's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of pictures that are being taken. You know, a porn sex scene can last two, three, four hours. And I think average sex for average people is something like 15 to 20 minutes. I, so, I thought, according to Kinsey, I thought it was 90 seconds. <laughs> it might be 90 seconds. Kinsey would be the one who would know, not me. 
So, but the porn sex, two, three, four hours. So when you think about the mechanics of, you know, the male anatomy and, and whatnot, and just the, the pressure of all of those extraneous factors, there's not a lot of men who can do that job. So a lot of times consumers react to porn um, saying, you know, why are we seeing all of these same guys? So-and-so was in this movie in 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010. I spoke on a panel at USC once, and a young woman in the audience raised her hand and asked a question, where are all the cute guys in porn? I want to see I want to see some cute guys in porn. And I gave her some names. But her question really stuck with me because she was basically asking, why am I seeing all of these seasoned men performers the same from the 90s, from the early 2000s, from 2010. And a lot of it has to do with the mechanics of the job. I understand. Um, now, uh, Chantel, when, during the shooting of one of these porn uh, films that you say takes, there might be two or three hours of, of, of consecutive uh, you know, set and filming, how many people are uh, approximately are on the set at the, uh, at the same time? completely depends on the production company, the type of budget. Well, give us a um, range from how many to how many. So from, you know, a, a bigger budget, larger movie, you know, grand scale thing that's relatively infrequently produced today, somewhere from 15 to 20. Um, the one that I was just talking about that I was on about six weeks ago had four people, including myself and a little dog. Okay, so, so somewhere between four and, and, and 20 people, so not to be too graphic, but what you're saying about the male performer is that these, these men have to be able to maintain a, uh, a male uh, erection in their penis uh, for somewhere on and off during a two to three hour period while being watched by between four and 20 people. And that's, yeah, and, and that's and, what and, makes and, the job difficult in and of itself. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot more... To it in terms of shooting still photography, changing mm -hmm. positions, moving around, all of that stuff. What we see in the final cut is only a small fraction of what happens. And I mean, it, being honest, too, there's a lot of goofing around and jocularity on set. So getting hassled as well. I'm sure people are being, you know, come on, let's get going, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Okay, it's, let's it's get back to the Let's get back to the workers. One of one of the one of the criticisms of this industry has been that the performers, in order to do this, both the the, the females particularly and the males, uh, have to take a, a or either have to take or are given all sorts of drugs. Um, uh, and, and, and you hear the criticisms. I mean, I, I saw a lecture recently by a former uh, a porn worker, and she, said, and she showed little slides of women being choked, women being poured alcohol down their throats, every hideous thing you can imagine. Where, where is that kind of criticism coming from, Chantel? Well, I mean, if you think about something like a picture of a person being choked, there is a lot of content where choking is, is part of, of the sexual fetish or the sexual depiction or the thrill of it all, you can go and look at any BDSM content site and, and you can see very safe, consensual sex practice that if it's not your thing or you're not involved in it, might look horrifying to you. So, for example, there's a production company called Severe Society Films, and Severe Society Films produces 
very hard BDSM content. And it's not for me. I see it and I go, wow, that's a lot of stuff. But that's not also that's also not what I particularly find appealing. But I know that the performers that are engaged in that are there consensually willing in a safe environment because I know the producers. I've been on set with them before. It's the way it is. So you're so saying they're safe. you're saying they're acting just like in a regular movie. You might see someone get shot, but it doesn't mean they're really getting shot or knifed exactly. or punched. And you're saying yeah. what we're seeing on these films that people are, are are arguing against is basically people acting, and they happen to be acting in sexual behavior. They could just as well be acting in a cowboy movie. Certainly. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's acting so plainly as that because. Even though porn sex is different than quote-unquote real-life sex, obviously people are engaging in it. So something is happening there. Like, you know, something is happening to the anatomy. People are engaging in that behavior. And there are some types of scenes that some people will and will not do. So there's a level of performance and acting, but there's also a level of people engaging in sex behavior and sex performance that they want. There was a performer who is very, very, very much involved in the like kink BDSM, a very prominent performer, who told me once in an interview that she can make even the most extreme sex acts that she may not even be into look good or look real such that nobody can tell the difference. And it was an interesting moment in that conversation with her because she was very proud. And it was she was very proud of her work, of her ability to convey sexual authenticity to people who need that depiction to satisfy sexual desire in their own minds or bodies. So when you see an image of somebody being choked, you might be seeing an image of somebody being abused, certainly, but chances are, I'm willing to bet, that if you're seeing an image that comes from a professional adult content production business or production house, that that is a safe, consensual sex depiction. So it's Whether it's theater. Like, Basically, what you're telling us is it's theater. I mean, the takeaway I'm getting from you, Chantel, in terms of your research inside the porn industry, is that if we can possibly put aside the stigma, the taboo, everything we bring to the table, the fact is this is a business it's just another business, and it hap- and it's an entertainment business, and these people are putting on theater for us. It's um, just another. It's just another business. It's just another just business, another but it ha- but it has this huge taboo. I want to yes. open up the lines now, so you can call in and ask Dr. Chantel Tibbles questions. The telephone number is seven zero seven nine three seven five one zero three. Again, seven zero seven nine three seven five one zero three. And we're going to read an email that we just got. Uh, can you read it for us, Michael, please? Sure. Uh, this is from Brian. And Brian, uh, he says, Your guest keeps talking about legal porn. The fact is the biggest growth in porn has been amateur do-it-yourself porn available on the Internet. There are almost no effective ways of ensuring that that sex is of age, consensual, etc. He says, I worked in porn to make money when I was 15 back in the 70s, and I can tell you back then everyone exploited was exploited at every level or another. Also, there was a lot of organized crime with this industry that put the performers around dangerous elements. 
That may have improved in the intervening years, but I doubt it. Okay, Chantel, he's going back some 40 years. Have things changed? Is organized crime less involved or more involved? And are people being more exploited or less exploited? Please tell us. I would say less involved. I've never seen any indicator of organized crime. Um, We're talking about companies that pay their taxes, that have offices, um, that are pretty much on the up and up. Now, what he's talking about there, though, these ideas about amateur porn or, you know, things that are sort of made off-site um, or outside of the professional industry, he has a point. Um, that those are, those are entities that are not necessarily involved. One thing that we all have to remember and that people need to be very, very aware of is that porn production in the United States is only legal in California, and in New Hampshire. That's why, well, part of the reason why we have such a huge cluster in California. Now, this does not mean that porn production, both professionally and on the amateur level, does not happen outside of those states. It absolutely does. But the idea that you're starting to get into gray areas and slippage, and when you are talking about a professional production company versus a couple that's maybe shooting amateur porn out of their home in Ohio, you're talking about very, very different entities. And so there is definitely something to be said about the range of experience there, mm-hmm. but there's also, when you're talking about those two things, you're absolutely not talking about, that you're talking about apples and oranges. Like they, yes, they're, they're both fruit. They're both making graphic sexual content, but they're not—they're not totally amateur and professionals. People. Not the same, like in every other business. We're going to take a call here, Chantel or Michael. Please put the person on. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Are you Good there? Good morning. I returned to the university. I took pornography 101, and it's in a gender uh, course. And two things that I found extremely interesting is, one, the computer industry and the technique are actually funded by the pornography industry. They're the ones now that are investing a lot of money into the 3D, into the tactile, into the smell, and uh, uh, it's it's amazing the promotion of uh, computers. Uh, evolving through the pornography industry. The other thing I thought was really interesting is there's a split. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm sorry. We're going to have to cut you off. There's a tremendous amount of static. Uh, Michael, you'll have to stop that. Okay, is that gone? No, I still hear it on the air. It wasn't the caller. Um, Chantelle, are you still with us? Yes. Good. I, I, it was hard to hear that caller because of the amount of static that was on the line, but she seemed to be implying that we're going to be uh, witnessing uh, pornography that's going to come with, uh, with smells and, uh, and sounds and various other things, uh, sort of 3D plus coming down the pike. I, I thought that's what she was saying, but I couldn't really you understand her. You know, what, what she, to me what it sounded like she was getting at was about um, tech development as it is is connected to the adult industry. And I would say that due mostly, you know, historically to the discrimination that happens, so no billing, we need different modes of distribution, et cetera, et cetera, porn for a long time was really at the forefront of technological development, and porn kind of shaped 
the, the market and the way technology went. And it's interesting because you're starting to see a kind of a resurgence of that. Um, I just recently saw that um, there's a, a flashlight attachment that you can um, hook up to your smartphone or your to your iPad to give you a quote-unquote three-dimensional adult content watching experience. So, you know, we're getting definitely into the days of Demolition Man. I don't know if anybody remembers that silly movie, but there's definitely a lot of um, enhancements that are coming down the pipeline, and there have been for a while now. So it's interesting to think about. Okay, callers just uh, got an email here to re- repeat the number. The number here to call in is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. Chantel, tell us something about the other people who work in the industry. The focus is often on the people who are willing to be on the film because we see them and we wonder. We have questions like, how did their mommies and daddies feel about t- seeing them on the, uh, you know, turning on a, a, an internet and seeing their sons and daughters, mostly their daughters, because the men's faces aren't shown for the most part, correct? You just see their genitalia. But how do their families feel? How do their friends feel? Are they socially alienated? We focus on them. That's one part. But the second part of my question is, what about the other folks, the secretaries, the accountants? How are they? I mean, do they are they able to like go in social situations and say, "I'm a secretary in the porn industry," or "I'm an accountant in the porn industry," or "I'm a I'm a I'm a, a gaffer or a lighting man in the porn industry"? Are they comfortable <laughs> with that, or are they stigmatized? Do they have troubles? Um, you know, I, I think with any question like this, it has to do obviously on the individual and and the individual experience. But one of the studies I published, it's called Sex Work, Office Work, Women Working Behind the Scenes in the U.S. Adult Film Industry. And, it, you know, I, I specifically look at women who work behind the scenes in the porn industry, people who work in human resources as producers, as, you know, people who manage content, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing that I identified in that work is this thing I call the sex worker dividend, which essentially describes that people experience a by-proxy measure of sex worker discrimination that is not the same as what happens to people who are actually performing the sex labor, people who are porn performers, for example. It's not the same, but it does still exist. So you still get people who could be describing this amazing media marketing campaign that they did and how they won an award and they got this much traffic and this many sales this for being innovative, et cetera, et cetera. But then as soon as people find out that that was because of a, an adult piece of adult content, that all of a sudden it's, well, it's porn, so it doesn't count. So then so it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. It's they're yeah, discriminated. They're, they're really, it, yeah, discriminated against. So if you're an executive in the porn industry or you have a middle-level job, it's not something you t- your, your child wants to go brag about in school. Or maybe they do. Know, Depends on what school. There's interesting stories that I've, I've had women and men tell me about, you know, women executives in the business, women marketers in the business who've had, you know, when their children were young, who, you know, the neighbor came down the street and said, I don't want my kid playing with your kid because I know you work in porn. And the woman is like, I work in an office. Mm-hmm. But it's a porn office. Yeah. So. We're going to take another call, Chantel. Let's put him on, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Thank you very much. So, I have two questions. One, <clears throat> so I come to America and everybody's kind of, you know, fat, you know. Most people big and fat, not so pretty. 
But you look at porn and mostly nice-looking women, not so bad-looking men. How does it affect people's self-image to see people doing something they do, but looking much better doing it? You know. Wonderful question. Thank Other you, question, sir. No, no. Is I understand too that since there is no sex education, that most kids are learning about sex through porn. How does that affect sexuality to see people, you know, doing what they do in the movies? Um, kids think this, thinking this is normal. Excellent question. Chantel, what do you say? You know, I can actually kind of answer both of those together, and you're right. Excellent question. Thank you so much. Um, in terms of thinking about the body types you see represented in porn and in terms of thinking about the types of sex you see represented in porn, first of all, there's not a unilateral monochromatic body type presented in adult content. If you start digging around and you look across the board, you know, more than just a simple search, you can see a wide variety of people shown. So it's there, and it, as time is passing, it's actually increasing quite dramatically. But your point that you've seen overrepresentation, or that you see certain types of sex, and because kids you know, have developing sexualities and they're curious about sex, they go out looking and that's the easiest place and we don't want to talk to them about sex. It's it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing to use content that is intended for fantasy, for stimulus, and never, ever, ever, minus a small amount of adult instructionals that you see, porn never, ever says, I am here, I am pornography, and I am here to teach you about sex. Just like we watch the Fast and the Furious movies for thrilling exhibitions of driving, we watch porn for this acrobatic, fantasy, whatever type of sex. And if that's not your thing, there's so much content out there that will show you different versions of sex and different visions of sexuality. But the fact remains is that when young people... Or, you know, adult-aged people look at porn uncritically as sex education. That is a bad thing. That is, that is a problem that we have in our culture that is not about porn production, but about sex education and about puritanical attitudes about sex. Chantel, I have an interesting question here about the private sex lives of the porn workers, the, the performers. Do you, do, is, do you know anything? Can you share anything uh, on that topic? In other words, what, what's it like when they go home at night? Do they, what's their, their own personal sex life like, and how is it affected by doing this kind of work? I mean, that's, again, one of those questions where everybody's story is different, everybody's experiences are different. And, you know, for the most part, what I can tell from people talking about me, there's a wide variety. You know, there's there's people who have wild and crazy sex in their personal lives and people who have monogamous vanilla sex. And, and all of those things are part of the human experience. Um, so I can't really speak generally about it, nor do I want to try to describe someone else's sex life. But the thing that I can say is that the sex that we see on camera is work sex for most people. It has, there's connection, there's chemistry, you know, something has to be kind of moving around for it to happen, but there's a big difference between sex that's for performance, for porn, and stuff that happens in people's personal lives. I mean, just like there's a, a different you when you go into the office versus when you're at home in your living room. Last but not least, the, something about the money. 
who's making the big money in the porn industry? Are there stars making big money as there are in Hollywood? Or for the most part, is the money being made by the people who are doing the production of the, of the porn movies? You know, there's, a, again, a range like everything else. There are some performers who make six-figure incomes. Um, there's no, there's no performers that are making, you know, Angelina Jolie money, That that doesn't happen. That's something that, you know, HBO puts on entourage and, and we all think is true. That's not the case, especially not nowadays. Um, producers really struggle nowadays. There's a lot, um, piracy has really, really hurt the bottom line for a lot of companies. So, you know, just like anything, people want to present the best face forward, but, there's a lot of companies that were there five years ago that no longer exist um, that have closed their doors because of financial strain. And I think people who are making a lot of money now have more to do with innovation and distribution and people who are thinking bigger picture. In terms of performers, I would say people who are, are really mindful of their careers, control their content, and are really, really active on social media are probably making a better income than people who are sort of passively approaching their career as a performer. Thank you. And, and I do know that it's been quite a thing for you personally and professionally in terms of income because folks, believe it or not, even though Dr. Chantel Tibbles is a renowned sociologist, there is a social stigma attached to even doing academic and, and professional research as she is doing, and she is to be applauded. She has been published in the Stanford Law and Policy Review, as well as many other peer-reviewed professional journals, and yet there is a stigma attached to even doing the research. Dr. Chantel Tibbles, thank you so much for your willingness to be on our program today, and I look forward to catching up with you and doing another interview in the future. Thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate it. And if anybody has any questions for me, you can find me on Twitter at, at Dr. Chantel easy to find. And thank you so much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.